special edition of Let's Pod This. My name is Andy Moore. Myself, along with my co-hosts Bailey and Scott, are taking the week off from our usual recording schedule to rest and spend time with their families and, as is appropriate on Labor Day, to honor the American worker. The origins of Labor Day date back to the late 1880s, before the land run and before Oklahoma was a state. The first Labor Day holiday was in 1882 in New York City and was organized by the Central Labor Union. That's right. The holiday isn't about working, it's about workers. It isn't about laboring as a verb. It's about the organized efforts of the American workers who built this country and its prosperity. It's about their struggle against the oppression and the exploitation they experienced at the hands of big business. Labor Day is about the American spirit, about our rights, and about our freedom. It's been nearly 150 years since that first Labor Day celebration, and our country still struggles with how to reconcile the ideals of capitalism with the ideals of community. We want low prices, but we want high quality. We demand high-paying jobs, but we refuse to pay people a living wage. As with so many policy areas, there seems to be a disconnect between our words and our deeds. To put it another way, the debate on the floor and the votes on the board do not match. For our part here at Let's Fix This, we encourage you to spend a few minutes this week reading about the origins of Labor Day. Take time to pause and reflect on the environment and the circumstances that created the need for workers to organize. And then consider how the economic and political situations back then compare to the state of things now. And remember, the strength and resilience of our great nation stems not from the rich and powerful, but from us, the hundreds of millions of everyday Americans who work hard and live free. Now, most episodes we talk less about workers and more about voters, but by and large, those two groups are the same. Workers. Voters. Americans. People. We, the people, of these United States, in order to form a more perfect union, establish justice, ensure domestic tranquility, provide for the common defense, promote the general welfare, and secure the blessings of liberty to ourselves and our posterity, do ordain and establish this Constitution for the United States of America. I'm going to wrap up my part here, but don't go away. The rest of this episode is a civic sermon delivered by Whitney Kimball Coe at our CivicsCon event earlier this year, and it's really worth listening to. Whitney is the Director of National Programs at the Center for Rural Strategies. In that role, she leads the Rural Assembly, which is a nationwide movement striving to build better policy and more opportunity for rural communities across the country. As an organizer, speaker, moderator, and writer, as an organizer, speaker, moderator, and writer, Whitney has shared her perspectives on community and civic courage with audiences around the world. 
She's been featured on stage at the Aspen Ideas Festival and the inaugural Obama Foundation Summit, and as a guest on the radio program On Being with Krista Tippett. She writes a regular column for her local newspaper, the Daily Post-Athenian, and has participated in Citizen University's Civic Saturday Fellowship Program, which I get to do later this month. She holds a master's in Appalachian Studies from Appalachian State University and an undergraduate degree in Religion and Philosophy from Queen's University. She lives in her hometown of Athens, Tennessee, with her husband Matt, their daughters, Lucy and Susanna, and is gracious enough to have spent time with us during Civic Saturday to deliver what I think is a really thoughtful and inspiring civic sermon. And so, without further ado, Whitney Kimball Coe. Great. Oh, hi. Thank you, Andy. I'm so excited to be here. Um, I'm calling in today from Athens, Tennessee, where I live. Uh, and I, I love that you mentioned Citizens University. And um, I heard you mention Eric Liu a couple of times. And I think, you know, we both have this mutual admiration for him and his team and um, for his wife, Jenna, and all the servant leaders that are at Citizen University. And I feel really privileged to have gone through the Civic Seminary with him. And I understand that applications for the next Civic Seminary are now open. Um, so for folks who are interested in bringing Civic Saturdays, this new gathering and ritual to your community, consider going through this programming, Civic Seminary. So that's my plug for uh, Citizen University. Um, I'm about to deliver what's called a civic sermon. It's, it kind of represents the high point of a civic Saturday. Um, so on any given civic Saturday, you'll have civic scripture read, you'll have um, some hymns sung. We call them scripture and hymns, but actually they're seminal American texts or songs that um, celebrate our country, like the Star Spangled Banner and texts like the preamble to the Constitution. Um, and then the civic sermon is delivered by someone from within the community or the person who was trained through civic seminary. Um, and the sermon is meant to call us together to greater civic responsibility and, uh, and to catalyze our, our drive and energy um, to be more active and engaged citizens in our community and in our nation. So I'm about to give you a taste of what a civic sermon might sound like. A few days before white supremacists descended on Charlottesville, Virginia in 2017, my friend Ray showed me a copy of an old newspaper article with the headline, Negro Youth Hurt an Incident at Theater. Ray offered the article to me in the lobby of our local YMCA, where we both work part-time. The article was dated July 20th, 1964. He waited a beat for me to read the headline, and then he pointed to it and he said, that boy was me. I've known Ray all my life. He's known me since I was a child, and now we work together. Years ago, Ray was my elder, and now here we are, side by side, on our spin bikes at the Y, talking about our families, our children, and his grandchildren, our mutual love for all things community. And then this is how life happens in small towns. You come to know people in chapters and phases. And over time, you meet them anew and you start new chapters. And on this day, it was like I was meeting Ray for the first time. 
when he handed me this article with that headline from 1964, Negro youth hurt in an incident at theater. It was a new chapter for us. Ray and I live in Athens, Tennessee, which is located near the foothills of the Great Smoky Mountains to the north and the Cherokee National Forest to the east. Our little community of about 15,000 has a lot of the trappings of a quaint small town. We have a church on just about every corner and we like to pull out all the stops on patriotic holidays. We have more amenities than some small places and fewer than others. We have a main street and a courthouse square. We have a game shop and some local restaurants. We're no longer a dry county, so uh, now each end of the city has a liquor store. We have a Walmart and we have some Dollar General stores, a school system, and even a hospital. We're home to Mayfield Dairy Farms. Athens maybe lacks commercial entertainment and a vibrant nightlife, but there are plenty of backyards, porches, and riverbanks where we can throw down a lawn chair and bring our own coolers. We may not have a symphony, but we have a community arts center that prioritizes performances by local talent and community theater players. We don't have a baseball league, but we have a field that brings together schools and community leagues to a shared space. Our many houses of faith may feel claustrophobic at times, but they are where the real care and feeding of souls happens. And on Sundays, I get to worship alongside people whose politics I may disagree with, but whose devotion to the food pantry is everlasting. We also struggle here with many of the same issues that plague other rural communities, especially high rates of chronic disease and addiction, childhood poverty, lack of quality and affordable housing, lack of health insurance, spotty broadband, you know the list. And like most towns in East Tennessee, Athens is majority white. Our local government is made up of white men, the city council and the county commission. All the heads of departments, including law enforcement, are white. And all my life, I've observed the silent but palpable disconnect between the white community and our black neighbors who make up about 10% of the population. For a long time, I could count on one hand the number of people of color I knew, and Ray was one of them. He's a familiar figure in Athens. Throughout my life, I've seen Ray in many community settings, mowing the lawn as a volunteer for the local arts council and for St. Mark's AME Zion Church up on the hill. He serves meals at Grace and Mercy Ministries and organizes reunions for classes of Cook High School, which was the all black high school here in town until desegregation closed its doors in 1966. Black students were bused to all white McMinn County High School after that. From Ray, I've learned that there's a deeply rooted black community here in Athens, whose history is only recently coming into local mainstream consciousness, thanks to a new historical marker that was erected half a mile from my house, which tells about Free Hill, a forgotten community, established by free blacks in 1854 with St. Mark's AME Zion Church at its center. Free Hill is now mostly gone, replaced by low-income housing. Ray grew up in the Freehill neighborhood, as did a number of um, other Black elders in the community. Like Freehill, their experiences have been largely raised and buried, replaced by softer community narratives. When Ray handed me that news clipping from 1964, he seemed genuinely surprised that any documentation existed of a young Black boy's encounter with white mob violence. He was 16 years old, 
and President Johnson had just signed the Civil Rights Act of 1964. Ray and a pal of his decided to test the limits of this new legislation by attending a double feature at the Old Strand Theater in downtown Athens. Ray says that the woman at the ticket counter didn't want to sell them tickets, but she did anyway. And the white people, already seated, didn't want them to take a seat, but they sat down anyway. The jeering started almost immediately, and it ebbed and flowed throughout the first film. He said he was scared, but he didn't leave. At the beginning of the second feature, a group of white men sat down in the row behind the two boys and started making threats. Then he heard it, the clinking of glass bottles. Quick as possible, he and his friend jumped up out of their seats and ran toward the exit, but a glass bottle caught Ray in the head, and as he stumbled into the lobby, covered in blood, another group of white men started to converge, shouting epithets and promising to finish him. Then they heard sirens and ran. The bottle throwers were never identified. Just a few days after Ray showed me that news clipping, another white mob marched on Charlottesville, Virginia, wielding torches, glass, and promises to finish what they started. It took the president more than 48 hours to rebuke white supremacists, but for many communities, communities of all sizes, it's taken more than half a century to start to acknowledge the deep racism that's buried deep in community narratives and memory. I had a different civic sermon planned for you today. I was going to talk about small towns and rural places as proving grounds for democracy, as places where close-knit relationships and proximity to shared challenges and experiences can help people come together to spark real change. And I really do believe that, that small towns are uniquely positioned to build civic power for positive change. I've seen it with my own eyes when we gather for this new civic uh, this new ritual of Civic Saturdays. I've seen it in the ecumenical and interfaith efforts to feed and embrace those who've been marginalized. Um, I've seen it in the collaborations to restore our downtown and our main street. I've seen it in the ways we keep showing up. Well, before COVID, we, we'd show up at funerals, PTA meetings, Wednesday choir, United Way fundraisers, and community cleanup day. We're practiced at persistence and participation and community ritual. But I don't think any of us thought of the Strand Theater um, as, a, as the site for white mob violence. But it's also true that just like every other community in this country, my hometown isn't practiced at acknowledging our discomfort with our racial past and its sister present. Here in Athens, we call ourselves the friendly city and we lean on precepts like just be kind and love thy neighbor. We, re we rely on light nudging to stir civic spirit. But it really isn't kind and it isn't love to put a time limit on the pursuit of justice. Racism, bigotry and misogyny and all the phobias are dying slow and angry deaths because we think they are old and yellowed like that 1964 newspaper clipping. We like to think that we're beyond all of that now. But over the last few days, we've been reminded again, we're not. George Lloyd, Rihanna Taylor, Ahmed Aubrey, the hundreds of thousands of black and brown bodies in jails and prisons right now across the US, our black and brown neighbors whose stories we haven't heard yet, 
or we don't remember. Ray, it isn't kind and it isn't love to pursue a civic awakening without also causing some disruption, without seeking to expedite the death of forces that have harmed us for too long. Here in Athens, we can't truly call ourselves a friendly city unless we're persistently participating in the pursuit of justice. So for days, I've been thinking, how do we start? How do we start this process? What is ours to do? What's yours to do? The go-to advice I see on social media is to educate yourself, and that's good advice. And there are plenty of books, media, commentary, and analysis out there that name the realities and that name the stakes. There, there's all, this, all of this material out there that offers unvarnished truths and brings into relief all the ways poverty, violence, and suffering in our country are connected to the stones beneath our feet that were laid centuries ago by conquest, colonialization, slavery. How do we uncover those stones and cast them away? What does meaningful civic action look like, especially for white people and for majority white communities? How do we get beyond the social media outrage and, and start practicing the kind of civic responsibility that calls us to a better society? I don't have all the answers, of course, um, but I've gleaned some wisdom from my friends of color and from leaders who model courageous compassion and moral clarity. Brian Stevenson is an author and a death row lawyer. He, he says, get proximate. And there is something almost mystical that happens when we let ourselves encounter and stand witness to the suffering of others. We become more compassionate and compassion means to suffer with. Storyteller Courtney Ariel offers six practices for would-be allies in a recent article for Sojourners. And in it, she says, listen more, talk less, and do the hard work of relationship building and tending. And within my own organization, at the Center for Rural Strategies, we talk about allowing for mistakes. We're going to make them. If we're practicing meaningful work, it's just going to happen. But we just need to make sure we learn from them and we don't make the same mistake twice. In my bones, I really believe the highest calling, the highest civic calling in this moment is to practice humility. Humility in this moment means to listen, and dwell and let what we hear break us open. And then we find a way to pay it forward. In the years since Ray shared his story with me, I've wondered why. That was back in 2017. And I still wonder, why did he share it? Why did he bring that article to me at the YMCA? I shouldn't speculate on his reasons probably, but I took it then as an invitation to courageous conversation. He was inviting me to listen and dwell and acknowledge this new chapter in our relationship. And this now is me trying to pay it forward, following Ray's example, inviting you to have courageous conversation in your own hometowns. What are the stories that have been raised and buried like the Freehill community? Can you imagine new chapters in your relationship with people whom you know in a long time? New chapters like the one Ray initiated with me. If we can remember that the pursuit of justice is also the pursuit of love, that we are seeking one another 
seeking to free one another from the isms and the phobias that have held us hostage for so long. That is gift. That's Ray's gift to me. He sought me out, offered his story, and then freed me to speak with truth that was grounded in love. Our civic responsibility in this moment, I truly believe, is to free one another, to speak for justice, to listen and look for justice and do it all with love.